Join me in Romans, if you would. If you don't have a Bible, I think we have some in the back corner there. If you want to grab one or maybe look on with someone else, you're welcome to do that. But the last two to three years has afforded us the opportunity to take quite a journey, a gospel journey, because we've been studying through the book of Romans, which is a book about the gospel, about the good news regarding God's great son, Jesus. And uh, last week we concluded the journey, so to speak, but today what I want to do is, is recap everything looking at the big picture uh, of Romans and doing what I'm going to call getting a grip on Romans. So it's time to get a grip, in other words, and we need to get a grip on Romans. Uh, hopefully it means uh, Romans gets a grip on you so that you'll never be the same because of the gospel, but we're going to call it getting a grip on Romans, and there'll be eight things that we're going to need to take to heart if we're going to get a grip on Romans. So that'll be our outline for this morning. I used to say that I wanted to master the Bible. Uh, and that was a goal of mine as a young, naive Christian um, some 20-some years ago. And uh, I know I'm never going to master the Bible, but I would like to have the author of the Bible and his gospel mastering me. And I know it means understanding the Scriptures better. So I can't think. I, there are a few things I can think of that would be more helpful uh, to any of us. Uh, there are a few things I can think of that would be more helpful as far as me to give to you uh, than a way to understand Romans clearly because it, it presents the gospel like no other book does. Uh, it covers the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's all about this great, great work of Christ for us. And I'll tell you right up front, one of my goals, if not the primary goal, would be that you would be able to go home and read Romans and to be able to read it successfully, maybe to read it like you hadn't read it before. It's a complicated book, but it doesn't have to be overly complicated. And since it's so gospel-esque, gospel-centered, uh, I would want you to be able to, to use the cliff notes, so to speak, and to understand the gospel better and more clearly by understanding this book better. Have you found Romans yet? Maybe a couple of you are still looking. What a journey two to three years has been. I know some of you have actually been converted during these last two to three years studying Romans. That's pretty amazing to think about. Um, some of you have been convicted. Uh, some have been offended by what we've studied in Romans. Uh, some have been revitalized. I would be one of those people. I've been convicted along the way uh, and revitalized along the way. I, I promise you that even though we'll move on to something else and we'll study other things in the Scriptures, uh, I'll never think the same. I'll never read any other part of the Bible the same way because of what I've learned here, and I hope you're going to be the same way even as a result of what we talk about this morning. All right, eight things to help us to get a grip on Romans. Number one Getting a grip on Romans means getting the priority of the gospel. Getting the priority of the gospel. And we see the priority of the gospel throughout this book, but in the opening verses, the first 17 verses of Romans are introductory. He introduces the great theme of the gospel, and he gives it a huge priority. Look right there at verse 16 in the introduction to Romans where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So Romans is all about the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That right there tells us that getting the priority of the gospel is vital to understand. The priority of the gospel. The gospel is what saves 
the good news about Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, that by believing in him, by trusting in him, you can be saved? And the Bible uses saved in relationship to save from your sins and the consequences from your sins, of your sins. The Bible uses saved, Romans certainly does, in this sense. Save from none other than God. That you can be saved from the just penalty for your offenses? You've got to get the priority of the gospel if you're going to get Romans. It's in chapter 1, it's in chapter 16, it's in every chapter. It's about the significance of the fact that sinners, rebels, those who have offended God can be reconciled to God. And it's a major priority in this book. I read a quote from the Dalai Lama this past week, not to help my Bible study, but maybe to fuel my Bible study. But the Dalai Lama said this, All religions make the betterment of humanity their primary concern. All religions, he's saying, are essentially equal because they make the betterment of humanity their primary concern. In light of Romans, that's not true of Christianity. No doubt Christians perhaps have taught the Dalai Lama this, but they've not done a very good job because... Christianity at its very core is not first and foremost about the betterment of humanity. First and foremost, it's about being saved. It's about being saved from the wrath of God. I suppose you could say that's the betterment of humanity. But that's not the sense in which the Dalai Lama meant it. Well, don't be that kind of Christian to so not understand Christianity to think that it's like all other religions and somehow it's about something other than what it really is. It is about the gospel. It is about the good news that Jesus Christ provides perfect redemption and that there's nothing more important and there's no greater need in all of humanity than that. What's interesting in Romans 1, we not only see that it's, it's the power of God for salvation, so you might say it's for unbelievers. We saw in Romans, and we've seen in Romans, that it's for believers. If you look at verse 7, it says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So he's writing to Christians. And then he says down in verse 15, regarding these same people, these Christians, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He's eager to preach the gospel to those who are already saints. And we've tried to emphasize this again and again, that the gospel isn't just for unbelievers to understand so they can be saved. It's also for us who are believers so that we can understand just how great salvation is. So that we can understand that, yes, indeed, we can get along with each other. We learn about that in Romans. We can understand what it really means to worship because we've been forgiven so much and Christ has been such a great Savior. The priority of the gospel is vital. If you're going to understand Romans at all, you're going to see that the gospel is number one priority. Let's move on now to number two. Getting a grip on Romans means something else. So that's the first 17 verses, number one. That's introduction. Now we move on to number two. Getting a grip on Romans means getting getting the righteousness of God as creator. It means getting the righteousness of God as creator. And what I mean is understanding the righteousness of God as creator, but to to use the the getting slang, if you're going to get Romans, you're going to get the priority of the gospel. And if you're going to get the priority of the gospel, you're going to get the fact that God is the creator and he's righteous. He's also the judge. 
Now, here's what I want. I want to stand on my head, but I can't do that. And it would look pretty silly, and it probably wouldn't be very effective. But I want to jump up and down and say, we've got to understand. If we're going to understand the gospel, if we're going to understand Romans, we've got to understand the righteousness of God who is the creator. And if he's righteous, that means there's judgment because the two go hand in hand. We've got to understand this. And this is in Romans 1.18 all the way to Romans 3.20. We're going to survey those verses. But if you're going to understand the gospel, you're going to understand Romans, you're going to understand that God is the creator and therefore he can do whatever he wants to do. He's also wanting to be the judge and he's a righteous judge. He's a fair judge. Okay? He's this God who has laws. I've been listening to some debates lately. I don't know why, but over the last couple of months I've been uh, listening to certain debates with... uh, well-known Christians oftentimes, and well-known atheists. And it's caused me no small amount of angst, frustration. I keep talking to my iPod and it doesn't work. It's, only for, it's a one-way thing. Because so many times, I think well-meaning Christians like you and like me dialogue with someone who is hostile to Christianity and we, they, fail to establish what is established in this gospel book, and that is God is the creator. And he is the sovereign ruler as creator. And he is the judge as well. And he has laws. If you don't mention that, it's no wonder that we lose debates with people regarding whether or not Christianity is a good thing. It's no wonder we don't even understand the gospel. It's no wonder we we look so illogical. But if you ground everything in, as Paul does in Romans 1, 2, and 3, God is the creator, therefore it all belongs to him. He's also the judge who does what is just and fair. He has laws. You know what? You can fault Christianity for a lot of things but you can't fault it for being illogical where there is suffering and pain. So let's make sure we get this. Not so we can win debates, but so that we can understand the gospel and maybe win some debates. (laughs) Let's see Romans 1, 2, and 3. Just a survey. Now this talks about sin as well. I'm not even trying to talk about sin yet. I just want you to see that God is the, the just, righteous, creator, judge of the world. It's his. Romans 1.18 starts with, for the wrath of God is revealed. That, that's judgment terminology. If there's wrath, we're talking about the wrath of God. And you say, I thought this was a book about the gospel. It is. But if you don't understand the judgment of God, you'll never understand the gospel of God. So the judgment or the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse For although they knew God, notice that's in connection to the creation, because he is the creator, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 24, therefore God gave them up. That's a judgment term. He gives them over. It's a form of judgment, and he lists all these forms of perversity, which, by the way, don't lead to the judgment of God. They're a form of the judgment of God. You see what's going on in America right now, and you say, oh, this is going to bring the judgment of God. It might bring the judgment of God, but you first need to know in light of Romans 1, it is the judgment of God. And we don't know right from wrong anymore because we've abandoned God as the creator, sovereign judge and ruler. And he says, I'll give you over to your own perversity. But for now, all I want us to see, creator, judge, judgment, give them up, it says. Drop down to verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. See, that's the problem. He's the creator. He's the righteous one. And they don't acknowledge him goes on to talk about what he gives them over to. How about verse 32, just by way of survey? Though they know God's decree. Well, you don't have a decree unless you're the sovereign. He is the sovereign. Then you drop down to verse or chapter 2, just skimming to see the flavor of judgment, righteousness, creator. It says in verse 2 of chapter 2, the judgment of God rightly falls. How about the end of verse 3, the judgment of God? How about verse Five, people storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. So there's judgment involved when God, he's the one behind it. God's righteous judgment or his fair judgment will be revealed. Verse six, he will render to each one according to his works. So he is righteous. He's fair. He gives people what they earn. He's not unjust. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. He's a fair, just, righteous judge. Or how about chapter three, verse five? But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, so he's this righteous, fair judge. Or how about verse 8? Their condemnation is just. We've got the justice of God again. Now, I realize that's pretty heavy duty. And you think, I can't wait to get to the New Testament, Pastor. <laughs> this is all in the New Testament. And it's all in the book that's about the gospel. But if you're going to understand the gospel, you've got to understand that God is the creator. Therefore, he has the right to have laws. He is the judge. He is the righteous judge. That means he gives people what they deserve. He's fair about it. You've got to see this. By the way, all of what we've read, those excerpts, they assume, they assume the law of God. That he does have laws. First and foremost, being that most basic law, which is what? Love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? We see that in the Old Testament. We see that Jesus says it's the greatest commandment. It's all assuming that. It's all assuming that God's great law, if you will, is treat me like I'm God. Treat me like I'm the creator. Treat me like I'm the sovereign. Treat me like I'm the judge. And the great sin of Humanity is that we don't do this. That brings us to number three. Okay? So, first we have to get the priority of the gospel if we're going to get Romans. Second, we need to get the righteous creator judgment of God if we're going to get Romans, or it won't make sense. And thirdly, if we're going to get Romans and therefore get the gospel, we're going to get universal guilt. 
universal guilt, the universal guilt of humanity. We've got to understand this. Otherwise, Christianity is illogical. It doesn't make sense. We've got to understand this. Guiltiness on our part. Now, isn't it interesting? If God is the righteous and holy judge, the just one, that does remind us something we need to be reminded of as Americans, and it reminds us that love isn't His only attribute. And remember that love in Romans won't even make much sense if we don't understand His righteousness, if we don't understand His justice, if we don't even understand our sin and our rebellion. We're going to get to the love part, I promise. We're going to get to the good news, I promise. But one of the reasons we're in such a mess right now in Christendom and even evangelicalism is because we have failed to remember and remind people that if you're ever going to get the gospel, you've got to understand that you have a God who's inflexibly righteous. And we've rebelled against him. We need to see in Romans, the gospel book, that in the very same chapters we just surveyed, it talks about our guilt. So Romans 1.18 to 3.20 not only deals with creator, righteous, judge God. Romans 1.18 to 3.20 deals with all of us being guilty of treason, spiritual treason, punishable by death. And we need to make sure that we see this in Romans also. Number three, getting universal guiltiness. If you're feeling a little depressed and wondering if you should have come this morning, I think that's a good place to be. Because you're getting ready to hear the good news. And the good news isn't that God helps those who help themselves. You're just getting ready for the good news. We're not going to take the time to reread Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter, but just for simplicity's sake to understand, Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter, generally speaking, just deals with garden variety unbelievers. You know, those bad people out there. Those people that don't follow Judeo-Christian values. That's Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter. And those are the kind of people that the Jews, or we Christians would say, yeah, those people deserve the wrath of God. They deserve the judgment of God. They don't follow God's holy book. They don't follow the morals outlined in it. And those people, they deserve condemnation. That's the argument that Paul is really giving. And he knows that people like us, or when he's originally writing, people like the Jews are going to say, that's right. They deserve it. We're so glad God is just and righteous. But we're good people. We're moral. Chapter 2 deals with us if that's how we're going to think. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. What? Chapter 2, 1, therefore, you have no excuse? Oh, man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Oh, ouch, Right? I do want to say, yes, those people are rebelling. They are sinning. They, if, if justice is served, they should deserve it. But then he's arguing and he's helping the rest of us moralists to see that, you know what? We're lawbreakers too. Maybe on the outside, we don't do all the same things that they do, but we think about it in here and we, we, it comes from here. 
And so he paints the moralist into a corner through chapter 2. I won't take the time to read it, but chapter 2, verses 2, 3, 4, 5. And so then I'm starting to feel like, oh, well, maybe, maybe I'm in trouble with this righteous God. Maybe I've got a problem too. There's wrath here too in verse 5. So then maybe we say, okay, I'm not the garden variety pagan. Uh, I'm not the moralist, uh, but I have a holy book and I have religion on my side. So, the just wrath of God is for all those other people, but it's not for me because I'm a religious person. And then chapter 3, he deals with us. If that's who we are. Chapter 3, let's just sample it in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews? They're the people with the holy book, with the right religion. Are we Jews any better off? 3.9 says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, so that's everyone, that's universal, are under sin. Verse 10 is scathing. As it is written, quoting from the psalm, none is righteous, no, not one. And he just unleashes this sentence of condemnation, even with religious people. Then look at verses 19 and 20, and we'll take a breath of air. 19 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. No one can say, but I'm a good per." No. And the whole world, so it's Jews and Gentiles, all people may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And you just go, I give. Universal guilt. We've all, when it comes to being in a right relationship with God, the God who says, love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've all committed spiritual treason and we've all given this one creator, righteous judge God who has laws, who is the sovereign, we've given him the finger is what we've done. And we've said things our whole life like to me God is, which goes back to Romans 1. This is depressing, I know. This book is written so that we can understand the gospel. Therefore, if we don't understand this, we're never going to understand the gospel. We've got to get this. God creates. He's the sovereign judge of the universe. He can do whatever he wants, and he has chosen to have laws. First and foremost, it's a very logical law. Treat me like I'm God. And none of us have done that. That's the argument of Romans 1, 2, and 3. It's devastating. There's no hope. Morality can't help. Religion can't help. Nothing can help. My friends, you, you've got to get that if you're going to understand the gospel. You've got to get that if you're going to understand Romans. And by the way, maybe just a footnote that's going to help you to be a better reader of Romans. Just remember that when you're reading 118 to 320, this is crucial, okay? This is worth the price of admission. How much did you have to pay to get in here today? Well, if you had to pay a million bucks to get in here, this is going to help you in your Bible reading, I promise you. Remember that when you're reading 118 to 320, 
He's going for the climax or the low point, if you will, in Romans 3 at the end of universal guilt. And if you don't understand that, you're going to get lost in some of the details in chapter 2, maybe in chapter 1. Because sometimes he plays out these hypotheticals and he plays out these other kinds of arguments. You've got to understand where he's going as he's trying to push you into, I can't even find a good corner in this multidimensional building, but he's trying to push you in a corner. There's kind of one over there. He's trying to push everyone, the whole world, into a corner where we say, nothing to say. If you remember that's the argument, you'll make your way through the details. Okay, so now that we're all feeling like we wish we would have watched the Hour of Power, um, (laughs) and if you don't know what that is, praise God. um, (laughs) Now and only now. Are we ready for some good news? Because fair is condemnation. If I get what I deserve, I deserve condemnation from a righteous God. Number four. Have I done three so far? I skipped one first hour. Only the people that listened to the sermon came to me afterward. So when those three people came to confront me, I felt kind of guilty. I covered it all, but I just I forgot to call number six, number six. So if somebody would just raise their hand, if I forget six, I'll mention it. Number four. By the way, the first four are the long ones. Getting a grip on Romans means getting justification. It means getting justification, understanding justification. Crucial that we understand this great reality called justification. And we see this in 321 all the way through chapter 5. By the way, we see it all over in Romans. But oversimplicity is going to put it this way. Okay, you read uh, introduction, first 17 verses, then 118 to 320, you've got God as the righteous creator judge, as well as universal condemnation. Then you get to 321 to the end of chapter 5. It's all about justification. It's all about how, here's what justification is. It's all about how rebels, sinners, insurrectionists, all synonyms, can be declared righteous, to be declared perfect under the law of God even though we're not, and therefore be reconciled to God, and therefore no longer be God's enemies but to be His friends. It's gospel news. It's good news to be justified, to be declared righteous. It's this legal term where sinners, those who aren't righteous, are declared righteous based upon the righteousness of Christ. That's a mouthful, and I'll keep talking about it in case you're not catching it now, but it's crucial that you get justification. And let's take a sampling from Scripture itself and see this. So three, we're really depressed after 320. Things are dark. The lights are out. The final nail has been driven in. And 320, the best word in the whole Bible, perhaps, is the first word, the word but. Kids, go home and tell your parents today that the best word in the Bible is the word but, and you will be right. In context, here we go, verse 21, but now, now we're ready for it, now we're going to get it, now we're not going to pervert it, but now the righteousness of God, which by the way, we hated before because it was against us. Now the righteousness of God has been made man, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous, declared perfect by a righteous God, by His grace as a gift so we don't earn it. Through how? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a satisfaction or an atonement by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Let's pause there for a second before we get to that. Now, this is going to be belabored and unpacked throughout the rest of the book. How is it that Pat Abendroth, the sinner, the one who offends God, the one who's never loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength ever in my life, can be righteous in his eyes? Because if I don't have it, I'm smoked. If I have not obeyed that law, I'm going to get what I deserve and it's going to be a death sentence. How can I get the righteousness that I need? From the righteousness of Christ, who did in fact love his Father with heart, soul, mind, and strength, therefore fulfilling the law on behalf of everyone who would ever believe, the Jesus who then voluntarily went to the cross and made propitiation, right? Red, uh, uh, propitiation or atonement for my sins, paying for my sins so I'm not going to be held accountable for my offenses any longer. The one who redeemed me, we read in that passage. He freed me. He bought me out of the slave market of sin. I can stand before God, righteous in His eyes, even though I'm not because of the what? Righteousness of Jesus Christ. Credited to me, how? By faith. Only by faith. This is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's in Romans 3, it's in Romans 4, it's in Romans 5. Go home and circle or underline all the places in those three chapters where you see faith or believe or believe or trust or trusted. And they're all over the place and they're all in the context of being declared righteous. How can I be declared righteous? I can be declared righteous based upon the righteousness of another by trusting in him. Remember, faith is nothing. Faith is not a work. Faith is dependence. It's, it's trusting in the work of another. But let's keep reading. This is magnificent logic on fire when we keep reading in verse 25 where it says, this was to show or to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, this is glorious and magnificent, so that he might be just or righteous and the justifier, the one who declares righteous, of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is so good. This is amazing. This is astounding. And it's anything but illogical. Because remember, we've got this righteous God who has rules and is a judge. And where there's sin, he's going to judge. He doesn't say, ah, forget about it. Because then he wouldn't be righteous anymore. He wouldn't even be upholding his own law. So what does he do according to his love? Oh, yes, that is an attribute. According to the great love in which he loved us when we weren't lovely, Romans chapter 5, he sends his son so that he pours out his 
wrath on his son to propitiate our sins. But before that, his son came to fulfill all righteousness, to obey the law of God. So that when we believe in his son, we can be justified, declared perfect. But God isn't doing some word game. He's not doing gymnastics. He's not doing some kind of legal fiction. It's real. Because Jesus is real. He really lived a perfect life of obedience. He really died a sinner's death even though he never sinned. He really rose again from the dead for our justification, as Romans 5 says. Isn't it good? It's so good. It's worthy of the word gospel. You've got to get justification if you're going to get the gospel, if you're going to get Romans. There are other texts throughout this whole text that talk about this. I want you to just to see uh, what it's going to go on to say in verse 27. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Nobody's going to brag. But what kind of, by what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. If you want to use law terminology, I'll just call it the law of faith, Paul says. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Then to help you better understand Romans, he's going to know that people are going to object and say, what about Abraham? What about David? And he's going to say, sinner, sinner. Both Abraham and David, the big heroes of the Old Testament, were both justified how? By faith. They were justified by faith in God, God's promises. I love Romans chapter 4, verse 5 in that context. We're not going to take the time to read all of Romans 4 that talk about Abraham and David. But 4, 5 is worth underlining. If you only underline your Bible once a year, here you go. I'm going to give you permission, as long as it doesn't violate your conscience. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, here's what I really wanted you to see, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. How about that? Christianity proclaims a message where God, the righteous, declares the ungodly righteous. This takes any form of, if you're a good person and you do good works, then God is going to justify you totally under the bus, and rightfully so. Christianity is a religion where God declares the ungodly righteous. And this is good news for us because we've just learned in Romans 1, 2, and 3 that we're all ungodly. It's so good. This is why I would say, using theological shorthand with many other believers who have gone before me and before you, I believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not because I believe that creed or that confession, because that's Romans 3, that's Romans 4, that's Romans 5. And it just doesn't get any, any better than this. But think about it. If we hadn't spent the time, as laborious as it was, talking about God is the creator, God is the righteous judge of everything, and all of us have rebelled against him, therefore all of us worthy of condemnation, not even religion can help. Would Romans 3.21, Romans 4, Romans 5, would the gospel really make sense? And the answer is no. The answer is no. It just wouldn't. 
And you say, you have to believe all of that to be a Christian. No, you don't have to believe all of that to be a Christian. But if you don't understand something of your accountability to God and your guiltiness before God, you'll never understand what it means to be a Christian. So for your own sake, think on these things. Don't take my word for it. And for the sake of others to whom you communicate in the name of Christianity, do your very best with God's help to be clear about what Christianity really is. It's not, the, it's not like all other universal religions designed for the betterment of humanity. It's the one and only religion that has God being the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God declares sinners righteous. I love this. Can you tell? I hope you can. I hope you love this. As one reformer said, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. I think literally he was saying it is the mark of a standing or a falling church. To the degree that you don't understand justification, we're a falling church. Because you don't get the, what's most basic and fundamental to the gospel and Christianity. And I like to use that quotation regarding Christians and not just churches. It's the mark of a standing or a falling person. Do you understand that this God, because of the work of Christ, can declare you perfectly righteous by faith, even though you are yourself, Romans 4, ungodly? There is sureness in that. There is security in that. There is steadfastness in that. Where is your hope? My hope is not in myself. My hope is in the perfect righteous one. Who, who, by the way, it was said, from heaven itself, this is my son in whom I am what? Well pleased. That doesn't fit Romans 1, 2, or 3 because he's the extraordinary one. Romans 1, 2, and 3. 3 says no one does good. No, not one. God is not pleased with anyone who's ever walked the face of the earth post Adam's rebellion. But about his son, he says, I'm pleased with him. So I'm trusting in the one in whom the Father finds pleasure. Isn't it great? I so love this. I'm thankful you guys are here today because if you weren't here, I would just be doing this by myself. My family's not even here this service. At least last hour, I could have made them come and listen to me praising God and worshiping God, preaching justification. It's really at the heart of who we are and what we believe as Christians. Number five, getting a grip on Romans means getting sanctification. It means getting or understanding sanctification. And this is Romans 6, 7, and 8. And I realize justification is talked about in these chapters as well. I'm just trying to give a general overview that might be helpful to you. And I think putting it in these terms will keep it helpful. Broadly speaking, generically speaking, you've got justification where God declares sinners righteous even though they're not. Broadly, generally speaking, sanctification, God is actually making sinners righteous based upon the fact that he's declared them righteous in Christ. This is spiritual growth talk. This is where now my life is starting to change. 
and I'm being conformed into the image of Jesus. Okay, God doesn't just declare sinners righteous. He then, having declared them righteous, starts this process of sanctification, making us righteous. And we see this as a general overstatement in chapter 6, 7, and 8, till toward the end of 8 at least, it talks about our glorification, which is when we see Christ and we'll be made like Him, as in we'll be sinless. So we have to understand this in Romans. Now, in Romans chapter 6, we, we see this business of sanctification and this argument starting. Because look at chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's an illogical impossibility. It's unthinkable. No, not in a million years is that to be how you should be thinking. And then he goes on throughout the whole chapter and chapter 7 and chapter 8 to talk about sanctification, spiritual growth. When God brings the new birth, there's life. There wasn't life before. Now, I got to quick kind of go back into what number what, it, what was it? Number four, just for a second. And I've said this before, probably many many times, but in case you don't remember or you're newer, if you're not asking the question of Romans six one, you probably didn't understand Romans three four and five. If you're not therefore saying, hey, does this mean I can just live like the devil? Hey, does this mean I can just do absolutely whatever I want to do? Because I believe in sola fide, sola gratia. Fancy terms for salvation by grace alone, salvation through faith alone. It's all about Christ's righteousness credited to me by faith. And so let's party and live immorally. And do whatever we want to do. I'm not even going to try to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because you know what? Christ did it for me. Dude. But you see, people should be asking that when they hear you present the gospel. Because that is the logical question that comes having heard clearly that it is all the work of Christ because He, God, justifies the ungodly, Romans 4. And so I issue a challenge to you. When you tell people about Jesus, if they're not somewhere along the line as a result saying, now if I get this straight, does this mean that I can just sleep around? Does this mean I can just be a drunk? Does this mean I can just keep doing all the things I used to do when I was my own God? They should be asking those kinds of questions. It's a sign they get grace. It's a sign they get imputed, to use the fancy term, righteousness, credited righteousness. And then you're going to come out with what? What's your response going to be? May it never be! No! But I'm glad you asked. <laughs> right? You're going to say, no, 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 no. How can we, who died with Christ, still... Live to sin. We can't. We mustn't. And then in Romans 6, he gives the argument that in union with Christ, we died. We had a funeral. We died to sin. And then we were raised unto newness of life. And so it's an illogical 
impossibility. Can't be. Can't be. I remember in some of my older Bibles, I did it at least with a couple of Bibles. I don't think I've done it with this one. In the birth and death section, no, it's blank. On the death section, I wrote my own name. Date of my conversion, Romans chapter 6. In the birth section, I put the same date. My name, Romans chapter 6. Because the fact of the matter is, if you're a Christian, you have been united with Christ, and there was a funeral. And you're not enslaved to sin anymore. And you've been raised unto newness of life. Does this mean there'll be no struggle? No, it doesn't mean there'll be no struggle. But you're not enslaved anymore. And now you're in route. You're on a track. Sometimes not the fast track. I wish it was the fast track. But you're on the track to get to Romans chapter 8, verse, I think it's 30, that talks about glorified. It's sure that it's going to happen. The ultimate culminating point of sanctification is going to be glorification. Now, in Romans chapter 8, and I realize I'm just doing broad brush overview, in Romans chapter 8, we learn uh, about the work of the Spirit. Let's go ahead and take a look. In Romans 8, we see the Spirit. We saw something about our relationship to the law in chapter 7. We see union with Christ in chapter 6. And then in chapter 8, all of this is done not in our own strength, but when Jesus ascended, remember, He promised He would give another helper. The other helper is the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So that used to be us. But you, it says in verse 9, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is what happens when you become a believer. You have the Spirit. And we're now able to do the right thing. Inseparable from our union with Christ is the gift of His Spirit. And He unpacks this for us. The Spirit helping us. The Spirit interceding for us. We could go to other texts like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. But here we see sanctification because of our union with Christ. Sanctification because of the empowerment of the Spirit of God. And now this sanctification culminates in a sure glorification in chapter thir- or, you know, verse 30. Well, for the sake of time, we need to stop and the sanctification section, and we need to move on now, and we'll move on to number six. Getting a grip on Romans means getting a grip on sovereignty. Now, that sounds bad. Getting a grip on sovereignty, that's sacrilegious and anti-Christian. Anyway, getting a grip on Romans, nix that, um, means getting sovereignty. If you're going to understand Romans, you're going to understand sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. And this is Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's a unique context talking about Israel and God, how God has chosen to deal with the nation of Israel. And it begs the question, well, if we're eternally secure in Romans chapter 8 and we're going to be sanctified to the point of glorification and nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, then what about Israel? Because God made promises to them and he doesn't seem to be keeping them. Romans 9, 10, and 11 deal with that issue. There's a partial hardening upon Israel for our benefit, the Gentiles, to, to, to bring about our salvation cause them jealousy and that kind of thing. But there's a sovereignty aspect in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that God can do what He wants to do with nations. He can do what He wants to do with individuals. God is sovereign. He's in charge. He can harden one heart and soften another heart, and we shouldn't object to the way He wants to deal with people, even though we might want to object. 
And he uses phraseology like, Who are you, O man? Finger in chest. If it was in the vernacular of Pat, it would be, Who are you, pal? (laughs) To answer back to God. God can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign. Remember Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3, we've had a problem with the sovereignty of God as unbelievers. We might still struggle with it according to Romans chapter 9. It's a great little reminder. Don't answer back to God for the way he saves people and not others. I realize we're not reading much of the text for the sake of time and I hate to to do that, and I don't want you to take my word for it, but if you read Romans 9, you'll see something of sovereignty, and all of a sudden it puts you back in your chair, and you think, wow, um, Jacob and Esau, mercy on whom he desires. How about verse 16 of Romans 9? So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's pretty intense. But let me just pastorally remind you that we of all people should be the people that don't have a problem with the sovereignty of God, the kingship of God, the lordship of God. That was characteristic of us in chapter 1 when we were unbelievers. We should be okay with God being God. You know, like I like to say sometimes when I'm speaking clearly, (laughs) it's as if we're going to say, who do you think you are, God or something? Yes, I'm glad you noticed. (laughs) God has a God complex. And for him to have anything other than a God complex would be for him to be an idolater. Because he's the one true creator God. As saved, sanctified people, we should say, all right. Let God be God and every man found a liar. I'm okay with it. Especially the more and more I'm sanctified. Romans 10 is helpful though because it brings a corrective, it helps us to see that God being sovereign still works through human means. He uses the preaching of his word to bring about salvation. Romans 10.9, Romans 10.17. All right, let's wrap things up now. Look at number seven and number eight. Number seven, getting a grip on Romans means getting worship. It means getting worship or understanding worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 is the hinging point for this. Let's just read the text quickly and make an observation. It should affect our worship if we get Romans, if we get the gospel. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, therefore is connecting, I think, all the way back to the first 11 chapters that have to do with God and God's work and God's redemption and God's sovereignty and all that God has done for us. Therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, shorthand for all that we've learned in the first 11 chapters, to present your bodies, your person in, your, in its entirety as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Even using the word in the Greek text, reasonable worship. If God has done all of this, but... Now, like we learned about in chapter 3, and if he's done all of this for us, even while we're ungodly, and we go through all of these amazing mercies of God, and then it says the reasonable thing for you and for me to do is what? Worship. For an hour on Sundays, and you know, for the preacher's self-esteem, and he goes long now and then, I think maybe we'll give him a little bit more than an hour. Makes him feel good about himself because he only works one day a week anyway. 
trying to be a little facetious because he says, bodies, all of you, you know what's reasonable? Reasonable from this God who declares you righteous, even though you're not reasonable worship for you. It's your whole life is worship. Everything about you, every ounce of your being, your pulse, everything that comes out of your mouth should be for his exaltation and glory and praise. If you get Romans, you get the gospel. And if you get the gospel, you get worship. Worship is everything. We should be worshiping God now, right here. My sermon should be an act of worship to God. Your listening should be an act of worship to God. As well as the singing. And everything else. It's reasonable. It's fitting. Because He has saved us mightily. We get worship. In one sense, you could say, and that unpacks the rest of the book, and he shows us how we worship God in all of these different sorts of ways. And that would be true and right. But let's do it with this number eight. Getting a grip on Romans or getting a grip on the gospel means getting relationships. Our relationships are obviously for worship. Our everything is for worship. But let's categorize it by itself finally. Number eight, getting relationships. And in chapter 12, he starts talking about relationships. And and some of the high points in chapter 13, your relationship with the government. What is your relationship with the government supposed to be like now that you're a Christian, now that you understand the gospel? And he covers that. Then he starts getting into your relationship with other Christians. How about other Christians who are more mature than you are? Sometimes overbearingly so. What about your relationship with Christians who are less mature, maybe way less mature, sometimes irritatingly so? And everything in between. You get relationships now and you understand that God is the Savior And God is equally their Savior, whether they're more mature or less mature, wherever you fit into the mix. And how about this? You can get along with anybody. You can get along with all of them. And we don't have a church for mature people and a a church for immature people and mediocre people. Because we'd be very confused because most of the immature ones would go to the church for the mature ones and we would have a church split anyway. Because part of what we learned in Romans is the immature ones are the ones that think they're the mature ones. Talk about convoluted. (laughs) Talk about we're not perfectly sanctified yet. (laughs) We get relationships though. Because if I have been forgiven while I was unlovely, not just immature but rebellious to the bone, you know what? I can understand forgiveness and I can understand patience. And so can you. interesting he also covers false teachers in chapter 16 just by way of reminder that's a relationship if you get romans you get your relationship to false teachers you have nothing to do with them if they're promoting some kind of false anti-gospel doctrine remember chapter 16 verse 17 i appeal to you brothers Just as you're called to worship, he uses the same verbiage as we saw a couple of weeks ago. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine. That's the gospel doctrine of Romans. The doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that you have been taught. Avoid them. They don't serve Christ. I love that. I love that as a pastor. If you get Romans, at least to a certain degree, you're safer than if you didn't. 
In one sense, it's your key to safety because you understand gospel doctrine to a degree and now you can turn a deaf ear to false teachers. The big false teacher who's been publicized and promoted and unbelievers have blasphemed the name of God because of recently. Years ago, he's promoting anti-gospel false doctrine Gospel helps me to understand relationships to the point where I can say, you know what, that person is a false teacher. And you can too. Because they don't embrace gospel doctrine, healthy gospel doctrine. I love this. This is why we want to know and understand and quote unquote get the gospel because it helps us to be safe. It helps us to be not easily misled, gullible. And the gospel does that. The gospel equips us in that way. And then, and only then, let's pretend like we just read all of Romans. Because ideally, that's what we would have done this morning. And obviously, for the sake of our culture and the way we look at time, we weren't going to do that. So let's just pretend we just read all of Romans by just reviewing the high points. Having read all of Romans, then we're ready to do what it does at the very end of the book. Look, at, look with me, if you would. Chapter 16, verse 25, 26, 27. We've learned about the God who justifies the ungodly. He equips us. He transforms us. He sanctifies us. He glorifies us. He gives us His Spirit. And to Him now, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writing has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ Amen. And Father, we are saying amen for this great work that you've done for us and on our behalf when we were unworthy. And so we give you thanks and we give you praise. May our lives be acts of worship. May we be men and women and boys and girls who are getting the gospel for our own soul's sake and for the sake of the others you put in our life, that we would live, breathe, and die for your glory and honor, that we would boast in you and in you alone for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.